0: Exodus chapter number 33, verse number 1, the Bible said, And the Lord uh, said unto Moses, Depart, and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear, unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. Now, that's a pretty common occurrence in the Bible. God says that many times to Moses. Now, Moses, it's time to get up into the promised land. I promised it to Abraham and to Isaac and to their children, and I will fulfill that promise. But many times, the children of Israel got in the way of that promise. And they have done so exactly the same thing here in this chapter. Verse number two And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. And uh, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in the midst of thee. For thou art a stiff necked people, lest I consume thee and the way. Now, verse number two tells us that God's going to send an angel before the children of Israel to fight their battles for them. And I have to say, it would be nice if God assured me that every battle I was to ever face as a Christian would have the assistance of an angel with me. He says, hey, I'm going to send an angel in front of you to fight all of your battles for you. And that sounds pretty good, does it not? But it is so much less than what they had. We'll get a little bit further into that. Verse number four, and when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned. And no man did put on him his ornaments. For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are stiff-necked people, I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment, and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. Now I don't know if you're picking this up, but God is pretty straightforward with what He's telling Moses to tell the children of Israel here. And and really there is a very... Uh, a a sharp tone to the text he's saying i'm not going to go with you in this endeavor i'm going to send an angel and if, if if you don't give me some space right now i might just consume you in my anger now what would cause god to get that angry with some of his children well we find out in the last chapter The last chapter, we'll continue reading here for a moment, but I just want you to constantly be thinking, God's not being cruel here. Exodus chapter 32 is potentially one of the saddest chapters in all the Bible, but the Bible says in here in verse chapter 33, verse 6, and the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb, and Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation which was without the camp. And it came to uh, pass when Moses went out into the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended And stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. I pray that you would give me the strength, the wisdom, and the clarity of thought to preach this message. Lord, I pray that you would anoint me with your spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would give each person in the room the spirit of understanding as we try to study this passage together. I ask that you would help me find clear direction as to where to go with the sermon tonight. I ask in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Now, I find it strange as we read through this passage how God says to the children of Israel, essentially, now you're going to go into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. They were going places, but without God. Isn't it amazing what we have in America? Some of the uh, technological advancements are remarkable. How many of you think it's pretty awesome that our cars can stop when we do not tell them to stop? They can start with the push of a button from your cell phone and they can park themselves if you were pretty bad at parking when you took your driver's test. They do it all for you. That's pretty remarkable. I find it incredible how often we just neglect to think of the miracle that I am able to look on my cell phone screen, see my in-laws, which are in North Carolina, and talk to them in real time. Can you imagine if we showed this technology to Moses? He, he would probably say, now I talked with God as face to face. But I mean, this is really face to face. It's amazing that what used to take uh, days and weeks for us to send mail across the nation. Whether through Pony Express or whether through snail mail as we like to call it. Now all it is is just as simple as a few keystrokes hitting the click uh, send button and there it's gone. At my computer, because it's a Mac, you hear the little jet takeoff type deal like the whoosh, like you're on your iPhone or your iPad, and then you know the person has read it or they're ignoring you, one of the two, which often is the case. But is it not amazing the technological advancements we have? It's amazing that as we have phones now, we really don't even need to carry wallets because I can pay for my food with the touch of my fingerprint on the face of my phone. That's crazy. Even in, medical, uh, in the medical field, there have been some incredible advances made. In fact, in 2016, MIT ranked the 10 best uh, medical and technological advancements. And one of them is this. Genetically engineered immune cells uh, are saving the lives of cancer patients. Man, we, we have come so far, but I'm not sure it's always been with God. But we've come a long way politically, have we not? I mean, when you start to think of some of the policies that seem to be just commonplace now, when one man actually stands up and says, hey, I... I don't know about you guys, but it's just my opinion that a man ought to go into a men's restroom and a woman ought to go into a woman's restroom. That's just my opinion and call me old-fashioned, but that's just what I think. And he's criticized for that opinion. We've come a long way, but I'm not sure it's always been with God. You see, what I was referencing in chapter 32 is the golden calf. What happens is, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and while he's up in the mountain, the children say, what's become of this man Moses, our leader? What are we going to do if we don't have him? And they look at everybody and say, well, we don't know what we're going to do. We don't know where to go, what direction to head. We don't even know a God because Moses was our connection to the one true God. And so they look at the only spiritual man in the whole crowd. And I'm not sure he was so spiritual at this point. But they look at Aaron and they say, Aaron, up, make us gods that will go before us. So Aaron says, all right, here's what I need you to do. I I can do that. I need you to break off all the golden earrings which God gave you as spoil when we left Egypt. And oftentimes that is the case with uh, uh, Satan's temptations in our lives. Satan uses God's blessings to distract us from following God fully. And there Aaron says, just break off the golden earrings from your ears and from your uh, wrists there, and and we'll throw them into the fire. And the Bible says that that day Aaron graved a molten calf. He crafted a calf. Well, then the Bible tells us that the Lord tells Moses, Moses, you need to get down because something's gone awry in the camp there. Moses gets down from receiving the law of God. And I can only imagine as a preacher who just had revival, the excitement level in his heart and in his mind as he is about to show the people God's law for them. Coming down the mountain with tremendous excitement, we've got a word from God. We have God's written law for us. And then the Bible tells us that they get just within earshot of the camp and there uh, 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 Moses hears the sound of what he thinks is a, a, a battle or, or maybe some, a celebration. But Moses is wise enough to know that God would not have sent him down for that. He knows it's a, a party style scene. He goes and he finds there in the camp this golden calf that's been crafted by Aaron. And, and Moses looks at Aaron and says, Aaron, what, a, what made you make this calf? What did the people say to you that convinced you to do this wicked thing? And you know what Aaron says? And what? This is such a one of the most perverted lies in all the Bible. It makes me so angry when I even think about it. Aaron says this Well, I just threw the gold into the fire and this came out. That's like looking at a toddler and saying, How did that vase get broken? I don't know. No, no, no. Why is there a golf ball right beside the vase which is broken? I don't know. How did this happen? The golf ball just did it. What a foolish answer. And the reason that God is so angry with the children of Israel in chapter 33 is because of what took place in chapter 32. And earlier I mentioned to you, while having an angel go before you would seem like a pretty awesome thing, the problem is, is with the capitalization of that word. Look in verse number, uh, thir- uh, verse number 1 of chapter 30, or verse number 2 of chapter 33. And I will send an... Can anybody tell me what the, 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 the capitalization looks like there on angel... Is that upper or lower case? Lower. See, there's a big difference in the Bible when it uses a lower case A and an upper case A. And I'm not just making this up. I want you to take your Bibles to Exodus chapter 23, to the original promise that God gave them. Exodus chapter 23. Now, God all along was going to send an angel with the people. Exodus 23, verse number 20. The whole time the plan was for there to be an angel, but there's a difference in the angel they have now and the angel they had before. Verse 20, the Bible says, Behold, I send an... What's the capitalization look like there? Uppercase. Angel before thee. To keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions. Notice this. Don't miss this. For my name is in him. You see, I, am, I believe that when you see the capital angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is a Christophany. It is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. There's a big difference between a capital angel and a lowercase angel. And that's why I don't know why the Los Angeles angels of Anaheim capitalize theirs. Because if anybody, they're lowercase angels, okay? But here we are. God has always planned for there to be an angel go before them. But there's a great difference. You see, God says, if if He had sent Jesus with them into the promised land, and He says, I'm not going to go with you, that is theologically impossible for it to happen if Jesus is with them, but God is not. You see, God and Jesus are one and the same. See, they are moving, they are making progress, but it's without God. I want to show you three side effects this evening of progress that is not of God. I want to share with you, first of all, back in our text in Exodus chapter 33, verse number 1, a promise that is being fulfilled. Verse number 1, chapter number 33, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence, Thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. Now can anybody tell me, and we'll just do this out loud, we'll have an interactive style tonight, where is God talking about? Is He talking about a Whataburger drive-thru? What is God talking about right here where He says, Get up and go to a place which I have promised you. What is the name of that promised land? Canaan, this is God's promised land. And even the people, the spies that went in to view the promised land, it was beautiful, it was wonderful, but they were intimidated about what they might have to face when they get there. God said it would be a place with a, a flowing of milk and honey. It would be a wonderful place. It would be God's perfect will for them. And it actually represents for us New Testament believers, victorious Christian living when you're in the promised land. It was a wonderful place. And right after they fell miserably at the foot of a golden calf, what does God do? Well, He keeps His promise. Because God always keeps His promise. If He at one time told anybody in the history of uh, Israel that He would give them the promised land and it would one day be their land, well, He would have to do that. The Bible tells us that God cannot lie. There is no falsehood in him. Uh, The devil is the father of lies, but the Bible says with God, there is no variableness in him. When he says something, he delivers something. When he says something, the Bible will always put it like this, and it came to pass, because that's the way God is. Let me ask you a question. Do the children of Israel, after chapter 32, after the graven, molted image of this golden calf, do they deserve the promised land? No. But did God give them, give them a promise and keep His promise? Why? Look, I want to share it with you. Verse number one. Unto the land which I swear unto... What's the next word? Abraham. To... What's the next word? Isaac, and to, what's the next word? Jacob. You see, when God first gave His promised land promise, it was to men like Abraham, and to Isaac, and to Jacob. He said, you men have showed such faith. You've been so good to me, and you've been so faithful to me. I will make you a special people. Did He not tell that to Abraham? And now He is here, years later, fulfilling His promise because of, and here's the 1st subpoint tonight, because of great men of the past. These children did not deserve this promised land. But God was blessing them because of some men a whole long time ago. Let me ask you this. Why is, when is America going to stop living off of the blessings of our forefathers? I, for, for, uh, I have no idea why God would still continue to show any type of favor to our nation. The men that lead our nation are corrupt. The people that are in powerful or authoritative positions, they are wicked men. I don't understand for the life of me why God would give us any type of material blessing, physical blessing, spiritual blessing. I don't understand any of it, but God continues to do so. Why? I get so... Uh, so so tired, so exhausted of people telling me that all this stuff about America being a Christian nation when it first began was just, was just a malarkey and none of it was actually true and I bet that's the first time you've heard malarkey used this week. But uh, uh, I get so tired and fatigued of people telling me oh, that's just a, that's just a lie when men of old that founded our nation have been quoted as being great men of God you don't believe me, I'll share a few with you tonight. If you'll turn your attention to the screens, here's a quote from John Adams, our second president. He was saying this to the military leaders. He says, We have no government armed with the power capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and true religion. Notice, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people, it is wholly inadequate to uh, to the government of any other you know what's wrong with our constitution uh, it's not now it, it no longer governs a righteous people it, even the founders and some of the first men who were involved with the true understanding of the constitution realized wicked men could never be governed by righteous policies and procedures and even john adams uh, said so woodrow wilson said this America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture. You don't think our nation was built on God's Word? You're a fool. All of these men throughout history have said as much. Calvin Coolidge said this, Do not let anyone claim to be a true American who attempts to remove religion from politics. George Washington said that. Calvin Coolidge said this. The foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible, notice, that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. Do you know what he's saying? If people are not Christian, they can never be governed by that which was started in Christianity. And that's the reason our government is an absolute shambles today is because no longer are there righteous people in authority, and no longer are there righteous people being governed. The Bible says that righteousness exalteth a nation. And I believe... For some reason, God has continued to favor our land because of the faith and the commitment level of some men a long time ago. And I'm just wondering when God's favor is going to run out because of our current situation and not our past blessings. Man, God has blessed us not because we deserve it. We're not in such a great nation because we're a good people today. We're in a great nation because there were some great men a long time ago. I recall men that fought battles and wars for this country like the men in World War I and, and World War II and, and some of the tremendous sacrifices that our soldiers had to deal with over in Vietnam and some of these other uh, wars. These men were men who were committed to our country. And I'm not saying that today we don't have some of the greatest men and women serving our nation, but what I'm saying is our men and our women are being so pulled back and held back from their commitment level because of our government's bridling of them that they are wanting to serve and they're not able to serve. Our men and our women are great today, but it's just a shame that God has to bless our country because of past men and not present men. That's one reason that God allowed this promise to be fulfilled. Secondly, not only because of great men, but because of His great mercy. Look in the Bible, Exodus chapter 32. Now this is his conversation with Moses after God shows him what they're doing. Exodus chapter 32, verse 9. The Bible says this, And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And let me just say this, God could have fulfilled His promise to Abraham by now going through Moses. Moses turned down an opportunity here to be a patriarch in the nation of Israel. He would have been there with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses But now look here, and Moses besought the Lord his God, and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Notice, wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Notice, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, thy servants to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and says unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars in heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. Notice verse 14. And the Lord repented of the evil which He thought to do unto this people. Were they deserving of God's wrath? Absolutely. And it was an amazing thing that Moses stood up with the opportunity that was on the plate for Moses. God says, Moses, I'll now go through you. I'll kill all the people that have been giving you problems this whole time because they've been giving me problems too. I'll take them out and you will be the forefather of the nation that I will now start. His promise would be fulfilled through Abraham and through Jacob and through Isaac. Just like God had promised them, but now it would be circumvented, if you will, through Moses' line. And Moses says, oh God, don't do that. God, don't do that. Remember your promise, Lord. Just just think about it. And the Bible says that God changes His mind and is merciful to the people. There is only one reason why God has not just stricken our land with poverty and with pestilence. And and it is simply this. The Lord is merciful. If our country continues to progress in the way that is progressing now, God's going to have to write an apology letter to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think there's things in our country now that would make those men blush. We are a wicked and perverse society. I mean, can you imagine the things that are shown every single night on television like it's no big deal? The news stories that are showed about men going in and just murdering people for the fun of it. I, I, we are a wicked and perverse nation. And the only reason that I can say that God is not casting extreme prejudicial judgment ap- against our nation is because He is a God of great mercy. The Bible says, "...it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His pa- pa- compassions they fail not." Not only did uh, did God keep His promise to these people, secondly, I want you to see this, a pride displayed in foolishness. Verse 3, in chapter 33, the Bible tells us one of the reasons that God would no longer accompany them. They could go into the promised land, but it would be without God. Verse 3, the Bible says, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Verse number 5 says, For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. Now the term stiff-necked comes from, it's a farmer's term, and it speaks of an animal who is uncontrollable by the bridle. In other words, as a farmer tries to pull the ropes or the reins of this animal, the animal is unresponsive to it. And the Word truly speaks to two types of attitudes, both wrapped into one. The first attitude is this, hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness. He's saying, I try to speak to you, I try to get through to you, but you never get right, you never fix the problem. You are always hard-hearted. Exodus chapter 32, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the greatest failures of any people in the Bible they act like Moses had been gone for years. You know how long he was gone—about forty days. He wasn't up there that long, and there they are. Where did Moses go? We're in so much trouble. Look, they—they—they they, they still uh, uh, failed miserably, and there they are at the. Uh, uh, as Moses returns, they're partying, having a good time. Moses returns to them, and they're caught guilty. They know it. Aaron knows it. They are wrong. And what's so sad, in Exodus chapter 32, now we're in Exodus chapter 33, there has yet to be one man repent. It would seem to me that when you're caught, and when you're wrong, you would want to get right with God. But that does not happen. Not one single time. In fact, Moses comes down and grounds the calf up, pours it in their water. They're drinking their mistake, and yet not one time does any man repent. It's a shame here, but even when Moses throws down a choice, in chapter number 32, verse 26, Moses says this, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Like preacher preached this morning, How long haunts you between two opinions? He's saying, you choose God or you choose your golden calf. And he says, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. Notice, out of 12 tribes, millions of people, the Bible says, and all the sons of Levi. Out of all these people you're telling me, there's only one small faction of them that come out and say, We're with God. These people have just committed one of the greatest abominations in all the Word of God. And there they stand. Moses gives them a choice. Who is on the Lord's side? And they all just kind of look around at one another like, you going? I'm not going. Are Are you going? Are you? I'm not. What a shame. What a shame that when they're given the opportunity to get right and to fix the problem, fix the situation, they choose not to. You know why? Because they were hard-hearted. Not only were they hard-hearted, they were haughty. You see, in the Bible, uh, stiff neck speaks of a disdainfully proud attitude. It's, I'm not wrong. There's no way the problem could be with me. The problem is most certainly with you. Look how many times the children of Israel got in a problem situation and they looked at Moses as if it was his fault they were where they were. There they are on the banks of the uh, 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 Red Sea with Pharaoh's army closing in behind them. And they look at Moses and say... Why did you bring us out here? When just not too long ago, they were all triumphantly leaving Egypt with spoil from the nation, thinking, man, this is so great. Now they're in one little uh, problem uh, scenario, and they look at Moses and say, what did you do bringing us out here? They run out of food, they don't have anything to eat, and they look at Moses and they say... We don't have anything to eat. Why did you bring us out here? We had fish. We had all types of things that we could have eaten in Egypt. You brought us out here because there were no graves in Egypt. This is your fault. No, it was never Moses' fault. Without a doubt, every time the children of Israel fell miserably or ended up in a bad situation, it was without a doubt because they were, non, or they were a faithless people. They couldn't trust God. They would have manna provided to them every single day, and God only made one rule on Saturday, get enough for two. Uh, But every other day, only get enough for one. You know what the Bible says that almost every single person did the first day? Took extra. Why? Faithless. They could not trust God. And now they're looking at Moses, the man of such extreme faith that he's able to step out on the ledge of nothing in the Red Sea, lift up his staff, and God's doing great miracles through him. And they're looking at Moses like, you're the problem, not us. They were an arrogant people, full of pride. And God looks at them and says, one reason that I cannot accompany you into the uh, promised land is because you are a stiff-necked people. Friend, I tell you, in America, one of the problems with us is we are a stiff-necked people. As preacher mentioned uh, this morning, how come our altars are so barren? I, I, just, I just don't understand it. And maybe it's because we don't have good preachers, but uh, we, we sure bring in some guys that have other, good results other places. I, I don't understand why revival would break out somewhere else and revival couldn't break out right here in Joshua. It's because we're so stiff-necked. We hear the word of God and we say, Well, preacher, that's pretty good advice for those people. But I got all that I want. Yeah, Sunday morning messages are preached about the importance of attending Sunday night and Wednesday. And I tell you, I think it takes way more than three to thrive. I think it takes all to thrive. And if the doors are open, my family's going to be here. And Caitlin's going to say, Are we going to the church? And I, I, I'm telling you, we're going to be here because my family needs to be in church. And it doesn't matter what it is. If we're having a watermelon seed spitting contest, I'm going to teach my daughters how to beat your kids. Every time the doors are open to this place, I want my family around. And yet now our preachers have to beg our congregation saying, well, it's such a shame that we would have so many people in the morning and then just at night, we just, it's barren. I'm, I'm so confused about it because it would seem like If the preacher stands up and presents God's word and boldly proclaims God's word and he studies and he prepares and he prays and he does all these things and yet he bows his head for invitation only to have a few people come who probably aren't even praying about the sermon. They're praying about the flat tire on their car this week. It's such a shame. We're stiff-necked. I wonder how many times God is trying to get our attention with everything that He can, like a farmer would be pulling at the reins of that ox or, or that donkey there trying to plow a straight row. And the donkey says, no, I've got plans of my own. I've got uh, things that I want to do. And God says, no, just plow the row. Just plow the row. And the donkey says, no, I, I want to go over here. Just, just plow the row, God says. What we need to get back to doing, Christian, is plowing the row that God wants us to plow. We're a stiff-necked people. And one of the reasons that God could not accompany these people is because of the pride displayed in their foolishness. Thirdly, and I want to share this with you and we will be done, a presence that was far away. Verse number 7. Now what happens here is pretty unique. The Bible says, And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, far off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, since we have not studied this in any type of chronological order, or really any contextual order for that matter, let me just tell you, this is the first time the tabernacle is ever constructed. Right here. In fact, this is actually an incomplete tabernacle. See, back in chapter 29, God started to give preparation instructions for Moses... He said, "Well, this is how the priests are going to serve in the tabernacle, and this is how it's going to go." And God gave him all the plans for it, how it was to be uh, constructed. But here in verse or or chapter thirty-three is the first time a tabernacle in the wilderness is actually constructed. And I just wonder if it's by any coincidence that in chapter twenty-nine God gives them instructions. Chapter thirty-two they fail with one of the most miserable failures in all the Bible. In chapter 33, they're in need of restoration to their God. You think that's a coincidence? Or do you think that an all-knowing God knew that He was going to be a little upset with them and knew that they would need something to allow His presence to permeate them? And, and, and don't, don't fail to see this uh, here in verse number 7. Moses did not need the tabernacle. Where was Moses in chapter 32? He was up on the mountain meeting with God. He was there in God's presence. It was the, the tabernacle was not for him. Look at verse number 7. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the, what's the next word? Congregation. I love preaching to a large congregation, but I tell you, if you weren't here tonight, uh, I would not have a congregation. It's hard to make a congregation of one, is it not? This tabernacle was not for Moses. It was for the people. And I find it strange how Moses has to take it and set it afar off from the camp. And and we'll continue reading here. The Bible says, And it came to pass that everyone, once again, it's not for Moses, it's for everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp, I believe God's implementation and now here installation of the tabernacle here in verse 33 points us to two very amazing truths. First of all, that even after a catastrophic failure, God was still approachable. Now it took a little work on the people's part, right? Here's the sad part about it. Moses leaves to go to the tabernacle daily. You know what the Bible tells us that a group of the people do? stay at their tent door. God would come down on the tabernacle, and there they were watching as Moses met with God. And you know what the Bible says they did? Oh, they stayed at home and worshipped. I guess they decided they could do it alone. The problem was, was God's presence was not with them. God's presence was afar off at the tabernacle with Moses. The Bible here is telling us that even after amazing failures, God is still approachable. You don't believe that? It's, the Bible tells us in John 1, chapter 14, and this applies to the New Testament believer, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Did you know that dwelt there means to come and meet? This tent is actually called the tent of meeting. In fact, that's the only reason I can think that anybody would want a tent meeting. Because yeah. tent meetings are hot yeah. or cold. Every time you set up a tent, it rains. Yeah. Yeah. And then the tent and everything in the tent gets money. This is the only reason I can think that a tent meeting would ever be a good idea. And here they are with this tent, a tent of meeting. You know the words there, tent of meeting and dwelt among us are almost synonyms. They are one and the same. Christ came to the New Testament believer to give us our tabernacle through Him. The Bible tells us in 1 John, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And that advocate is Jesus Christ. He is our tabernacle. So anytime you're on the backside of a massive failure, I want you to remember, Christian, that God is always approachable. What an amazing truth. Not only is He always approachable, He's always attainable. He is always attainable. Now, this part of the story sticks out to me, and we are 25 minutes ahead of time, and I'm going to let you out in the next nine minutes, okay? Well, I'm going to to be done preaching in nine minutes, but we get out however long the Word of God works in your heart, and you come to the altar and pray, revival breaks out, all those things. When that's done, okay, but nine minutes from now, I'll be done preaching. So pay attention to this last bit. Verse number 11. Moses goes to the tabernacle. The presence of God descends on the tabernacle. Look at this. I find this very awesome. And the Lord spake unto Moses' as face to face. Well, that's not really that impressive to me. And the reason is because he was doing that up on the mountain. Moses is the one that received the law. It's not that big a deal. I mean, it's an amazing thing that Moses is able to meet with God face to face. But the tabernacle was not for Moses. Okay, now keep reading. And he turned again into the camp. So that means Moses was done with his revival service, his personal devotion time. Notice, But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Now I'll have you know, up until this point, Joshua is not the next leader of Israel. There's no announcement been made no no pomp and circumstance saying Joshua will be the one who takes us into the promised land. No. And yet there Joshua is, wanting a little bit of what Moses has. Every man standing at the door of his tent, and I would say probably for convenience. Maybe it's because they didn't think they needed enough church. You know, they, they didn't need all that tabernacle stuff. And there Joshua is. Moses gets up from the altar. You ever feel awkward when you're the last person at the altar? Right, right here, this is what's happening. And, and Moses says, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Moses gets up to leave. You know who the last guy there is? Joshua. There the janitor is. Brother John is the, is the guy that will shut the lights off tonight. Brother John, where are you at? Right back there. Uh, uh, Brother John uh, Scahill there. He'll shut the lights out tonight. You know what Brother John would be saying? Joshua, wrap it up, buddy. I mean, prayer's good, but you can pray anywhere, buddy. And there John would be on the back row, waiting for Joshua. And John would say, Brother brother, brother Joshua, can I help you wrap it up? Can I I do something to kind of, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Can I help you? I mean, can can I do something for you? And you know what Joshua would say? Hey, I got the lights, don't worry about it you go gone home because I'm still meeting with God. Amen. It was not impressive to me that Moses was able to attain God. What's impressive to me is because of Joshua's commitment, because he was willing to stay and he was willing to pray and he was willing to work and strive with God, this is when Joshua was made. Joshua was not made in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua was not made at the end of the book of Exodus. Joshua was made at nights by himself in the tabernacle, praying and asking God to touch his life and to work with the nation of Israel and to forgive them for their sins. It was a man striving and not letting go of God. That's what Joshua did in these meetings. And he attained it. On the backside of a terrible disaster, one of the the worst travesties in all the Bible. I just imagine a teenager... On the altar, they're praying. Saying, God, I don't know what your plan for me is. Lord, I don't know what you plan to do with my life. But I pray that you'd use me. And I believe it was at that moment when Joshua became the man that we're introduced in Joshua chapter 1. The man that God says... As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. There will never be a man be able to stand before you, Joshua, because you're my man now. Before everybody looked at you as if you were small. That day you came back from the, as one of the spies in Egypt there, and, or, or, or one of the spies in Canaan, and you were one of the only ones to say, we can do this, guys. Everybody looked at you and laughed at you. But now, Joshua, you're not that man. You're my man. Nobody will look at you and laugh at you now, Joshua, because you have my blessing on your life. The amazing fact is not that God was approachable. The amazing fact is God was attainable. The Bible says, draw nigh unto God, He will draw nigh unto you. The Bible tells us time and time again, the more we want to walk with God, the more we want to work for God, and the more we want to try to please God, God works in that man's life. You ever make your wife so mad? She says, just give me a second. Hey. It happens to me quite frequently. <laughs> the other day, and I don't know if I'm at liberty to share this conversation, but my wife's not in here. Hopefully she's in the nursery or maybe in a prayer closet somewhere getting right with God. I don't know, but the other night my wife and I got into an argument about why she will not try venison. I'm a man who loves to hunt. I'm a man who loves to, I mean, this may gross you out, but I'm a man who likes to clean an animal. I don't, like, eat the heart. That's gross, but I do put a little blood on there for, like, war yeah, I do do a little bit of that, but not that much. But I looked at my wife, and the reason is because we were going to banels. Miss Angel and Brother Curtis told us about Benel's, and it's like a place where they make wild game food, kind of like at a five-star level. And I will say, my wild game food is not five-star level at all. It's like wrap it in bacon and grill it. <laughs> so there we are, and unfortunately we got turned away from Bunnell's, uh because they were at restaurant week. They didn't have any tables open, but I got in the truck and I said, Amy, will you just try venison? No. Why not? Because it's, I don't want to. And when we argue, my wife turns into like a valley girl. Why don't you want it? I mean, I'm not asking you to like it, I'm just asking you to try it. Nah. Amy, just. Just come out of your comfort zone. Maybe it'll be the greatest thing you've ever eaten in your life. Well, I guess I'll never (laughs) know. I'm like, I don't understand. And I'm getting frustrated at this point. I don't understand why you just won't try it. It would mean a lot to me if you tried it. I'm not going to sit here and get criticized for not doing something that I don't want to do. I'm like, well, you're going to have to jump out of the truck then because uh, you are going to sit there and listen to me criticize you. You know, that date wasn't going too well. In fact, the truck got rather quiet after that. (laughs) We pull up into the driveway there. And uh, it was just a bad date from the get- get-go. Like uh, My truck was messing up. I could only do 39 miles an hour, so we're on the toll road <laughs> doing 39 miles an hour, arguing about venison, and these people are coming by telling me that I'm number one. <laughs> it was just an awful experience. We get back to the house, and we sit in the driver's seat and the passenger seat of her car, which hopefully will go faster than 39 miles an hour. And I look at her and I say, you know what, we just need to reset it. I mean, we wanted to have a good time, we wanted to go on the state. we just need to kind of let people who like venison be venison lovers, and let people who don't even want to try venison be stiff-necked and (laughs) close-minded. And I said, we just need to reset. And I held up my fist in the form of an olive branch, like a nook. And she looked at me, and she said, okay. And we nucked. So I haven't had a kiss, but I've I've (laughs) nucked. But it was a a meaningful (laughs) nuck. And there we were. Everything was back to where it was. We're good. We went out, we had a wonderful meal, a wonderful evening together. Everything was great. It was a great time. See, the amazing thing is not that my wife was able to put up with me criticizing her. The amazing thing is that my wife was able to kind of just forget about it and restore the relationship that was there and needed to be there. You know, the amazing thing about our God is not only that He is available for us, but the amazing thing is that He's actually attainable for us. If you, Christian, and I'm done, if you will put forth the effort, your journeys do not have to be you going at it alone. But every amount of progress and every step you take, God will be with you. Because God says that He's never forsaken His righteous. He's never seen the righteous forsaken, the Bible says. With you walking with God, you'll never go anywhere without Him.